0: Joining us today on the Dialogos Radio and the Dialogos Interview Series is Mark Blythe, a professor of international political economy and a faculty fellow at Brown University, and the author of a recent book titled Austerity The History of a Dangerous Idea. Professor, thank you for joining us today. It's very nice to be with you. To get us started, share with our listeners a few words about the history of the idea of economic austerity, of the theories, if you will, that this idea is based upon.
1: You have to go back quite a way to get to the roots of this, you almost have to go back to the origins of capitalism itself. So go back to the time of John Locke and the English Revolution back in the 17th century. What you have is a bunch of people who have decided that the divine right of kings isn't good enough anymore, and they want to redistribute property amongst themselves. Now, in order to do that, there's a paradox, which is you kind of have to take over the state. So you fight the civil war in order to run the state, in order to make markets. And the dirty little secret of liberalism is that markets don't spring forth from the ground. They're oftentimes made in conjunction with and made possible by the state. But then there's a problem, because if states are strong enough to defend you against the people who will take the property that you get, when markets generate that surplus, because it tends to generate rather unequal distributions, that state's also strong enough, as the Americans fear and why they have the Second Amendment, to come after you and take your property from you. So liberalism's always had a love-hate relationship with the state. It doesn't trust it, but at the same time, it needs it. And most importantly, it has to pay for it, which is a question of taxes. So it's out of that ambivalence towards the state and the need to fund it, that the idea of austerity comes out in the following sense, whenever the economy gets into trouble, if something has to be cut, it's rather than the excesses that caused the bubble, for example, in property that's blamed, it's the state spending that led to it. So we cut back on spending every time.
0: There's this perception that keeps being pushed by the supporters of austerity policies that we were all living beyond our means, particularly those of us in southern Europe, that spending is wasteful, that we must tighten our belts. But you take a different view and you place the blame for the economic crisis on the banks primarily. Why is this the case?
1: Well, it's not bank bashing for the sake of it. Banks are relatively useful things. It's just that when they become leverage machines, that is to say – For every dollar that they have in reserves, they have 30, 40 or 50 out there in loans and they fund themselves overnight to lend 30 years, they become very, very levered up and very vulnerable. So when the funding dries up, suddenly you're billions of dollars on the hook for loans that you have no way of keeping whole. And you turn around to the state and say, we need bailouts because if we go down, everybody goes with us. And that's an extortion racket. Now, that's what we think happened in America, but it actually happened in Europe as well. It just took a more slow motion forum through 2009 and 2010. To talk about Greece for a. Moment, much has been made of the fact that the Greek government in 2010 revealed that its deficit was bigger than had previously been advertised, and that certainly rattled the markets. But what really bothered the markets was the decision by the European Central Bank back in May 2009 to say publicly that they were not going to stand behind all European sovereign debt. That said, there's no backstop for the bank run if there's a bank run through the bond market, and that means that the market started to price Greek debt and other debts differentially from German debt, and that's where the problem started. If we go back to Greece again, the notion of an orgy of public spending. If you look at Greek public spending through the 2000s, it's really on track and quite average in comparison to everyone else's. Over a five-year period between 2001 and 2006, it's pretty much flat. As for the orgy of public spending leading to all of those public sector jobs which were useless, I believe that the figure was 14,000 jobs over a two-year period, which is no different from the United Kingdom when you scale it up. So there's a lot of nonsense being talked here as political cover for the fact that what we've done is bail out some of the richest people in European society and then put the cost of that on some of the poorest.
0: Now, as you mentioned a few moments ago, economic austerity is not a new concept. And over the past century or so, we've seen it implemented in numerous instances around the world. Could you share with us a very brief history of these economic austerity policies as they have been implemented in the past hundred years and what the outcome typically was?
1: Certainly. I mean, go back to where I began with the notion that you have this, love-hate relationship with the state, well, the problem starts to come in in the 19th century when the state gets bigger. And the state gets bigger because you have the reformist liberals, particularly in the United Kingdom, but also elsewhere, and you have a conservative version of this in Germany with Bismarck and others, that say that the state needs to kind of soak up the excesses of the market in order to protect the market from revolution. And that's why we have welfare states and other such devices. Now, the problem with these things is they're very expensive. And periodically, markets fall into crisis. And then those who have wealth and income at that point in time have a choice. They can either smooth the transition by spending, that is to say, when income is collapsing, you generate more income, which tends to mean taxing the top, or alternatively, you cut it for those at the bottom to reduce government spending. It's two ways of attacking a deficit and debt problem. Now, the problem with every as we see in the Eurozone just now is if everyone tries the trick at once, all that happens is growth disappears and the amount of debt actually increases rather than decreases. And we've seen this historically almost everywhere. My favorite example of this was in the 1920s in Japan. Coming out of World War I on the victor side, the Japanese thought that the golden age was ahead of them. They were the new industrialized economy. They were export-driven. They'd copied their institutions from Germany, just as the Eurozone's meant to do today. And then the world went into a gigantic slump. Rather than try and compensate for this, the Japanese government went on an austerity binge that took 30% of GDP out of the economy in three years. It was called the Showa Depression. It was deeper than the Great Depression. And the idea was by reducing costs so much, it's the same story here in Southern Europe today, you will become more competitive. But the problem was the world economy began to its long-slide into the Great Depression, and you couldn't be competitive enough. And the more that you were cutting, the more you were reducing domestic demand. And eventually there was nothing left to cut except the military budget. And eventually the Japanese military, after years and years of cuts, had enough. So they assassinated their political class, took over the country, and went on an imperial expansion binge in China and the rest of Southeast Asia. So austerity is key, not just as a bad economic policy, but as some of the crucial turning points for some of the ugliest moments of European and world history. Now, with
0: such a history, why do you believe the European Union and the International Monetary Fund chose this route for Europe when the crisis over there began a few years ago?
1: Because no one wants to stand up in a democracy and say we need to bail out the richest people in society from their own errors. And if we don't do it, we'll all be worse off because essentially they have us. And that's really what's going on. We talk a lot about the 1%. Let's broaden it out a little bit. It's true the 1% globally, as a New York firm report showed, own basically 40% of everything. But across the OECD, including countries like Greece and elsewhere, if you talk about the top 30%, you're talking about of wealth and income. And when the banks lever up and when they give us loans and we can buy new cars and all this, we love it and we love the mortgages and all this sort of stuff. And you have to remember that our assets are the bank's liabilities and our liabilities are the bank's assets. So we're all in this together. So the top 30% see the banks failing. And we're quite happy then when the government steps in and bails out these banks because they're bailing out your mortgage and your pension. And they're bailing out your assets and your investment along with the 1%. They may have billions, but you still care about yours. So you're quite happy when it gets bailed, but the cost of that is a massive increase in government debt. Well, who are the people who ultimately pay for that when you cut spending? Those who receive government services or salaries. So they're the ones who get their salaries cut by 30%. Meanwhile, you've had your pension bailed. I like to call this a class-specific put option because that describes exactly what it is.
0: We are speaking with Professor Mark Blythe of Brown University, author of Austerity, The History of a Dangerous Idea, here on the Allegos Radio and the Allegos Interview Series. Professor, in your opinion, what should have been done
1: differently back in 2009 or 2010 in Europe? Do what the Americans did, which is admit that you have a banking crisis. The Europeans still have a slow motion banking crisis. The Spanish banking system is not just illiquid, it's insolvent. If it hadn't been for the so called long term refinancing operations, which have been $2 trillion of liquidity pumped into the European banking system, it would, as a whole, be insolvent. There's an Oliver Wyman report came out at the end of last year that estimated that of the assets in the European banking system, 50% of them would be basically underwater or worthless if it wasn't for public money supporting the entire system. So you've got a banking problem, you address the banking problem. You don't address a government problem. You don't turn around and say the problem is that Greeks don't. Work enough when in fact they work six hundred hours a year more on average than Germans, and you don't create a politics of division between North and South. So how do you create how do you solve a banking problem? First of all, you force the banks to take their losses. And that means you have to confront some of the most powerful people in society and tell them that they need to actually bear the costs of the risk that they've taken. Now, how do you do that without taking down the whole system? You do it by developing the capacities of the European Central Bank. They say that they can't bail out banks, they say that they won't bail out sovereigns. Well, well, unfortunately, they missed the memo because that's what a central bank's for you're meant to bail, fail and then send the culprits to jail. So far all we've done is bail and everyone's gotten away with it that matters. However, in the American case, what they were able to do by identifying it as a banking crisis was to take the assets off the banks of the, book, the the books of the banks and allow them to delever that is their footprint of assets becomes smaller. This eases their funding constraints and allows them to recapitalize. So the American banking system is back to where it was in terms of size, which is 60% of GDP, but is much healthier and is lending again, hence why America's growing. The European banking system is twice as levered and three times the size of the American system. There are countries in Europe whose assets to their banks, to GDP, are 450%. I speak of no less than the United Kingdom. One bank in Germany, Deutsche Bank, is 86% of German GDP and runs operating leverage of over 40 to 1. These are behemoths. They They dwarf the sovereigns that are putatively responsible for them. And now they're in the euro and they don't have a printing press. They can't bail their own bank. So it falls back in the ECB and the ECB said, we don't do this. And that's where the whole crisis started. Once Mario Draghi came in, the ECB reluctantly says they'll do whatever it takes. It's called being a central bank. Because of that, and not because of cuts, and not because of austerity, because of that promise and the liquidity that was granted in the LTROs, the yields are down. Europe has breathing space, but it is addicted to cutting for the sake of cutting. And that's why it can't grow, and that's why it's not going to grow.
0: And that leads right to my next question, which is, we keep hearing about there being a Eurozone recovery. We hear many politicians in the European Union that are talking about how things are improving. And they're crediting, of course, the austerity policies with this supposed success. What is your response to that?
1: If I was hit by a car and I managed to stand up and walk away, I wouldn't thank the road for being there. And that's essentially what they're doing. They're confusing cause and effect. What's actually happened is a banking crisis. What has resolved the banking crisis is action by the central bank. Nothing more, nothing less. The countries that cut Greece amongst them has lost nearly 30% of GDP. Ireland is celebrating its return to the bond markets. Its unemployment rate is still 12%. And there's practically no one in the country under the age of 25. They've all moved. Quite how they're going to pay back the debt they've accumulated when cuts alone are generating more debt is a mystery to everyone. Now, why are they saying this? Because they're politically invested in it. Because some of them believe it. Sometimes it's ideological. Sometimes it's naked self-interest. It's not as simple as they're all in the pockets of the banks. It's, simple. it's a different, slightly different story which goes like this. We recognize that collectively the European banking system is multiples the size of the GDP of the underlying economies. We recognize that European governance institutions are completely inadequate for dealing with this task. We recognize that Germany alone is too small to bail this problem, even if it wanted to. If it tried, it would fail. So we're kind of stuck. So what do we do? We squeeze, we add liquidity, and we tell everyone we're turning a corner because we don't really have any other policies. The alternative would be to admit that they have a banking crisis. The alternative would be to develop some kind of common fiscal policies. But given that's in the hands of the Germans, who basically want to turn everyone into a mirror mirror image of themselves and for everyone to run an export surplus all at once, which is mathematically, let alone practically impossible, that's not going to happen anytime soon.
0: You mentioned a few alternatives just now, and in some of the southern countries, including Greece, we hear talk among some circles about a possible return to a domestic currency. Do you believe that this would be a solution for
1: some countries? You know, if you're a big country and you actually have things to export, then that can work for you. Spain were to do this, it might work. If Italy were to do this, it would work after a sort of short-term cost. The problem for Greece and Portugal is they don't have a growth model. So basically, although it's a myth that most of this public spending was wasted, for example, infrastructure became much better, the Athens subway was built, etc. The fact of the matter is that Greece doesn't really export anything that someone else doesn't export either in greater quantities or a higher quality. So the agricultural sector in Greece can become more competitive by pushing already chronically low wages further. And that means that in Germany, I can buy a bottle of olive oil for two euros. So you can make the argument that Europeans are better off because Greek olive oil is more competitive. But what exactly does that do for the macroeconomy of Greece and the people who live there? Not a great deal. These microeconomic solutions don't add up to a macroeconomic picture, but that's compounded by the fact that some countries simply even if they want to have their own currency, don't export enough of value to make that work for them.
0: Well, Professor Blythe, thank you very much for taking the time to speak with us today and for sharing your insights with us.
1: Unfortunately, they're rather depressing insights, but hopefully we can learn and move on. Thank you.